Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, and I'm here to talk to you today about the album Turning to Crime. Great controversial new album by the band Deep Purple, or if you're listening to this in 2024, the great controversial album by Deep Purple that is not new. Um, this is really interesting thinking about what's gone on over the last couple of years. I've talked about the the thing that Deep Purple did along with bands like Uriah Heep and a handful of others where they were selling T-shirts to benefit their crew. You know, the people that also have been furloughed from work and have not been able to you know earn an income from the job that they're used to doing. They're used to traveling around the world with the band, setting up, tearing down, doing all the tech stuff. And uh, so they've been hurting as much. So I love that bands, that there were some bands that got together and did those T-shirts. I think that was a really great idea. I'd like to see more of that kind of thing happening. It's kind of disappointing that there isn't more of it, at least not that I've seen. But uh, so thinking in terms of that, it's like, well, what do you do? You can't get together. You can't rehearse. Um, if all five members of the band are the writers of the songs, then how do you work that without being in a room together? And for some bands, it just doesn't work. When you have a couple of primary writers and then a couple of other guys that maybe bring some songs in, like the way Uriah Heap typically does it, uh, you know, you could do a lot because it's just mainly two guys can work across over Zoom, sending demos and ideas back and forth. That's not too difficult. When it's all five members, though, it's hard not to be in the same room and find that same level of feeling each other's energy and really creating together you know it's it it just isn't quite the same not that it couldn't be done but it's not quite the same so what happened was they decided to do an album of covers because that you can do you can work up your own demos in your studio hey let's try this what do you guys think about adding this part you know just send them back and forth maybe do zoom meetings and watch them together however and you could do an album of covers because you already have a foundation you don't have to worry about writing the song all you have to worry about is the arrangement and then how you're going to play your part within that network of, of arranging. So this was a reasonable thing, I think, for Purple to do. And they they were very adamant in the beginning of all of this COVID stuff that, you know, we're, we're pretty much done until, until the doors open to the world again. And so I'm really glad that they found a way to do something together. I mean, not just for for us as listeners or fans of the band, but for themselves too, because they had to be going stir crazy, not making music in all this time, at least not, you know, collaborating in the way that they're used to. So I think that it was uh, it was probably just as good for them as it is for us. W- what happened too that I really liked was the the whole concept of the album turning to crime being like, oh my God, Deep Purple's doing covers. They're not strangers to doing covers. The first album had quite a few. The second album had a couple. Um, This is going back to 68. But then, uh, you know, the last couple albums have had a cover on them each that I wasn't a huge fan of myself. In fact, I say if you remove the cover from Infinite, not the, the artwork cover, but the cover song, the last song in the album, if you let Birds of Prey fade out and let the CD start over into Time for Bedlam, it's absolutely a perfect album absolutely perfect. I love the way that that just goes right back into the beginning, the fade out into the fade in. The intensity of both songs just works so well. And to me, that is a perfect album. The cover I didn't care for. For one, it's not a song I particularly like anyway. I really am not a fan of that kind of bluesy rock. Just doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, But 
it, and I, I didn't really enjoy the version of it, to be honest. I thought it was okay, but it just kind of felt like, yeah, we just did it. It was, you know, a one take thing. I think I, I heard at some point, um, just not a big fan of that song. Anyway, if they had done a couple of EP CDs that could have been thrown on one of those and the rest of the album would have been absolutely perfect for me. Um, but I do love Infinite. I think it's a fantastic album. Whoosh. I absolutely love, I mean, there's some of the best writing and performances that this band has had in 50 plus years. And so I think for me, when I heard that this was going to be a cover album, I was a little bit disappointed. Not that I have any, you know, right to say they should or shouldn't do anything, but it was just that the writing and performances have been so good, especially over the last three albums. Some of the best I think the band has ever done for, for my taste, um, to have a new album coming out and have it not continue that energy. That was a little bit of a disappointment to me, but hearing the album, you know, and even looking at the list of cover songs, I'm like, I hardly know any of these songs and that's okay. You know, it just gives me a chance to hear something new. And then the songs that they picked that, that I knew I was like, eh, well, I'm sure they'll do something fun with it. You know, cause I just enjoy listening to how this band does their stuff. So, uh, however, we're going to get into the opinions of others in a minute. First, I want to talk about the artwork in the campaign here, because this is actually just brilliant. I mean, for somebody who works in marketing to be handed this concept, this is just a, a dream. You know, the whole thing is set up like you would see, you know, crime scene photos, the investigative wall where they have the pictures of everybody in the the red string thumbtack to all the things that each thing connects to. Um, very, very well done. They have a lot of stuff that's blacked out or what we would call in the States redacted. Um, little scribbles here and there, water stains. Uh, I mean, it's got it all. It, it's so well done. And then there's the, you know, the mugshot of each of the members of the band. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, I love Ian Gillen and Roger. They just, they just look dirty and disheveled, something that you would never see outside of this, uh, you know, a, amazing Don, Don, I don't even know how to describe what I think Don looks like. There's part of me that says it looks like he's given up. And there's another part of me that says, you know, it, it just looks like he's actually the boss behind the whole thing. And, you know, it's hard to say. Ian, Ian Pace uh, has a, a really interesting look to him as well. He kind of looks like he knows he was part of it. He wasn't the one that should be arrested. It's the other guys, but he's caught up in it and, and he knows it. The The most shocking one, though, to me is Steve. I mean, Steve just looks like he could kill your your dog. I, I've met him very briefly, albeit, but I've met him and I can tell you he's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And most people that have met him will probably tell you the same thing. So he's really, you know, quite an actor in this photograph because he just looks so uh, mean and not an expression I would ever, ever expect him to have. So it's it's a really interesting photo, but they did it. The marketing company, the, the, the whole thing is just so well done. I really appreciated that. They took it a step further and decided to do a contest where they give you clues and you have to figure out what all the letters are that form uh, a word or a phrase that you then take and enter into your browser. And that takes you to a website where you're eligible for uh, a, a drawing. You know, each one gives you an entry into the the drawing and they were selling or they were giving away a really cool bass guitar, some beanies, a bunch of stuff. Uh, I did not win, but I did solve the actual puzzle before it was revealed. I was really happy about that. Thanks to guys like Scott Adams 
and uh, programmers over at Infocom, um, the people that I spent years and years solving puzzles and things probably really gave me the boost I needed to do this one. Um, I also used to love Games Magazine. I don't know if that's still around or when that went out, but in the 80s, there was a magazine that you could get that had all kinds of different puzzles and things in there. And it was really cool. I know they have some like games books now that you can buy, but the Games Magazine was cool because it really just had such a variety of things and it tied into the, the current pop culture and all that sometimes. Really cool stuff. But anyway, I've spent a lot of my life working on little puzzles and solving things. So I think that probably helped once I understood what they were going for. What threw me off, and the contest is all over now. It's, it's done. The prizes have been given away. But what really threw me off was in so many of the pictures, there was this thing that just kept saying 28 and then the letter N. And so I thought that was the 28th letter in the phrase. Everything was done by here's a letter. And then in the uh, text of the picture, it would say something like, and look in today's clue for the 13th and 14th letter or something like that. And so seeing this 28N, I'm like, okay, so the 28th letter is N, but that became kind of an orphan. Everything else was within like the first, you know, 15, 16 letters. And I'm like, why is this one thing hanging all the way out here? And finally, I just dismissed and I'm like, I, I don't think this is a thing. I think it's a, a you know, a misleading clue. So, uh, and it wasn't announced. It wasn't actually said in any of the pictures that, hey, this is the 28th letter. Look for it in the photo. So putting all those things together, I cast it aside. I had some blanks in there. I put off to the side, like what I thought the letters would be. It turns out they were right. At one point, I thought one of the letters was an apostrophe. That was wrong. Uh, it, it was a bit of a challenge, but I had fun with it. It was a good time. Uh, would have been nice to have won something, but you know, just gaining the access to the website and solving the puzzle was a pretty cool thing. However, you guys know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I do not spend a lot of time on the internet. I find it a very dismal, judgmental, unnecessarily hurtful place to be. And so the challenge for me with this solving this puzzle was that I had to be on the internet. And of course, you know, every, every clue has to have, you know, comment after comment after comment about why this album shouldn't have been released, about how horrible the band is for doing it, how stupid of an idea this is. I'm not going to buy it. You know, all this stuff that people just have to insert their entitled opinions Here's the bottom line. Nobody cares. If Joe Smith, and I don't know a Joe Smith personally, if Joe Smith posts on the internet, I'm not buying an album of covers, that's great, Joe. You know whose lives you've affected with your comment? Nobody's. The only person that cares whether you buy that album or not is you. Guaranteed. The band, just because the band releases an album, I guarantee you that they're going to have enough sales to be okay. You know, I, if you want to cheat yourself out of listening to an album by a band that you claim to love, that's fine. But as far as telling the rest of us, you know what, dude, fuck you. No one cares. That's the bottom line. This entitled society where everybody thinks that everybody's waiting for every single thought you have and every single decision that you make and to be validated all the time has got to stop. It is just ridiculous and it fills our pages and it fills the things that we have in front of our eyes with negativity and judgment that's completely unnecessary. And we wonder why we have so many people 
that are in therapy or that are having psychological issues or are depressed all the time, you know, being surrounded by this elitism is a big part of that. I mean, we've always had depression and suicide and things like that. That is not to say that the internet has caused that, but it's certainly escalated it to unprecedented levels. And that's why I'm very rarely on the internet. You know, people say to me, well, you never like my posts. I probably don't see them. Honestly, it's not that I don't care about you. I just don't want to be on the net around that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you if you post something and I don't see it, I'm sorry. If I would probably comment on it, most likely I would like whatever it is you're posting. If you're a friend of mine, if you're someone I actually know, and not like all those people that just friend request you and don't even answer your, hey, nice to meet you note that you send them, um, you know, because people think that numbers are important when they're not. I mean, in the beginning, they kind of were. And I don't think I don't think even record companies are scouting that stuff as much as they used to. It used to be like, you know, how many friends do you have on Facebook? How many followers do you have on MySpace and Instagram and all that? I don't think anyone cares anymore. You know why? Because too many people are buying them. And if you're buying them or if you're just friending people blindly, those aren't real connections. You know, it's just bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all this cloud of we have to validate ourselves as being so important. You want to be important? Go do something that makes a difference in somebody's life. That will make you important. Stop commenting your bullshit comments on posts that no one knows you and no one gives a shit about your action. So that was the downside for me of this contest was it was a really cool to do it. It was really, uh, you know, it felt good to be able to solve the puzzle. But at the same time, it was like, just search for the letter, you know, but your eyes, they just catch things. You know, there's maybe three comments that are vis- are visible. And of course, you know, the two of the three are bound to be negative. You know, I can't believe the band is sunk to this level and all that. But it, in a way, it worked for the marketing because it played into the, you know, us doing covers is turning to crime thought process. So I have to, to credit the marketing department and I have to credit the band for coming up with this, for saying, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's do this. And then the campaign that followed. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It really fits the situation. And the comments that I did see from people really, really prove that the theory of this being a scandalous thing, you know, was right. What I do love is that the band pitched songs that were big influences for them. And I thought that was really cool. I thought it was interesting that none of the songs that Ian Gillen picked made it to the album. I would be curious to know what that list was. I would almost guarantee that there was at least one Dusty Springfield song on that list, Um, but I may never know. Anyway, uh, fantastic. Now, that being said, the other challenge that I have, and, and this has really been the case with the last couple of Deep Purple releases, and this is not the band's issue at all, um, I opted to get the Digipack CD. And the reason that I do that is because if you download it from iTunes or, um, you know, like Amazon, right, all you get is the album. And typically the Digipack has been the version that has had the bonus documentary. So I've opted to get that. Unfortunately, you know, when it comes out, I want to report on the album. I want to listen to it. So I order the first version that comes out and then I go, oh, damn it, there's going to be another version, isn't there? And sure enough, then follows another CD-DVD digipack combo that has the album. So now I'm buying it twice just so that I can get the documentary or the making of the album, which is always fascinating. In fact, I loved 
the one for Woosh with Bob Ezrin and um, and Roger Glover. There was a lot of interesting stuff in those exchanges, and to hear them listening to it and just see Roger and and Bob really getting into the music just in those few seconds that they were playing the song. Um, you feel the connection and, and how special these projects are to these guys, and you can't help but to want to enjoy the album even more, and and you you eventually will. But that being said, uh, so I bought the thing off of Amazon. It didn't even end up arriving until two weeks after the album was released, even though I ordered it a month ahead of time. So that goes to show you that, you know what, all you people out there with your hatred of Deep Purple doing cover albums, once again, fuck you. There's plenty of people that wanted it. So... The challenge for me is, okay, so I paid my, you know, $17 or whatever it was, and then uh, the album got shipped to me. And then I looked, I was looking on Amazon, I was looking on iTunes, I could not find anything with the documentary. The only reason I even knew there was one was my other issue with, with the way that Ear Music does their releases. So the initial release was you could get the CD in the Digipack, you could get the CD in the Old Fashioned Jewel Case, either one of those no list of content. So you don't really know if there's a difference between one of the two of them or not. No song list posted on the band's website, nothing at all. No pun intended, nothing to let you know what you're actually even purchasing. If you should make a selection of one over the other, nothing. Then you look at the LPs and now the digital downloads are easy because they show you the list of songs that you're getting and you can compare that way, but you don't know if the physical products, because they have done that before have different content. So there's a couple of two LP versions. There was the crystal clear double vinyl. That was a limited edition that is sold out. There is the creamy white version of the double LP. And that is also a limited edition, but apparently there are still some available. Then there is, of course, the black vinyl version, um, which is just the, the double vinyl. So you've got double vinyl release, which is interesting because with only, you know, a handful of songs on here, there's only 12 songs. For there to be a need for a double vinyl, that was kind of surprising. Um, that seemed like a weird thing because that increased the cost quite a bit. It also increased the shipping. Vinyl is heavy, and the more of it you have, the more it costs. And shipping is not cheap right now. The post office, at least in America, has raised their prices. Um, you know, I sent somebody a bottle of vitamin C one state over, and the shipping cost me almost $10. Ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So, Things are really expensive. So to go to a double vinyl, unless you had to, seems like a real unnecessary expense to me. But, you know, maybe that's a marketing gimmick. Here's where the biggest offensive thing is to me is that there was also, and this was available from the beginning, a five album version of this 12 song album. The only difference that was noted was that it also comes with a DVD with the documentary on it, which is the only way I even knew there was a documentary. So I'm thinking, okay, in the past, the Digipack has come with the documentary. It's a DVD and a CD or a Blu-ray and a CD. And, you know, you get the documentary on that. And then maybe some bonus material, like some live songs or something. But there was nothing on Amazon that showed that there was a DVD with the Digipack. Uh, there was nothing on the website, nothing at all. Just, again, just buy this copy we're not even going to tell you what's on it. We're not going to give you a justification of why instead of spending $30 to get the double vinyl version of Turning to Crime, you should spend $69 plus some ungodly amount of shipping to get the five album version of 12 songs 
no listing of whether there's bonus tracks or anything on that. Nothing to inspire you to pay more than double the price because, again, they couldn't be bothered to put a song list on the link. That really frustrates me as a buyer because I have decisions to make. I don't want to buy this album three times. Of course, they probably want me to buy it three times. Again, not talking about the band, talking about the record company. You know, they want to get as much money out of everything that they do. And as a business person, I get that. But as a business person also to not to expect me to just shell out $30 or $70 and not tell me what I'm getting for that money is pretty inconsiderate of the fans. It's irresponsible as a business when we have digital mediums that you just click one link and you should be able to have all that information to make an informed decision on your purchase. The only thing that you know that you're getting is a much heavier package. So the shipping is probably going to be through the roof. And what are you getting for that? You're getting the DVD with the box set for the documentary. That's it. That's the only bonus thing you're getting and and space taken up on your album shelf. So, you know, if it was a colored vinyl, if they were multicolored vinyls, if there was something visual about it that you could just look at and go, oh, that's cool. I want to get that. Other than just saying, okay, well, we've got an LP with a cover of each of the band members poster that we're also selling on the same site. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of extra money for, for one DVD documentary. You know, if you're, if you're one of the elitist collectors out there, I'm sure that's the one that you just went right for, but yeah, it just seems kind of ridiculous to me. So now, of course, when you go to the website and I've got the link in the show notes, because when you go to the order page, it gives you this little, um, thing in the middle that looks like an app and you could click on three different links to go to Amazon and purchase the album. There is the CD link, which gives you both versions of the CD. There is the LP link and another LP link. They don't tell you which one is what, what it goes to and why you should choose this one over another. Again, it's LP or LP. Well, when you click on the links, you find out that one is to the special uh, limited edition clear one, which is sold out. And then the other link is to all the other vinyl stuff. Again, really annoying. Um, but there is a link at the top of that list that is to the band store. So if you go to the Turning to Crime page, you're going to have a hard time finding this. I only found it by clicking that link. So I put that link in the show notes for you guys because you can get everything now based off of this one page. You're going to be ordering it from England, I would imagine. Um, I know that my order for the DVD was, uh, or for the Blu-ray version of the documentary um, was an overseas thing. So I don't know when I'm going to get it, but I know it'll get here at some point. So with this link, you can actually direct purchase everything off of their site. They also have some merchandise. They've got t-shirts, hoodies, posters. Uh, the posters are really cool too. And I really love the way that they aged them, that they did the watermarks. I mean, they really did a great job on the presentation of this package. Um, the DigiPack itself um, was, a, it's, it, I don't like when they do this. There is just the sleeve with the CD in it. And there's like a fold on the inside to kind of keep the CD from just falling out. But, you know, over time, that's going to wear out and your CD is just going to roll on out of this thing. Um, unlike other digipacks that I bought that have actually had like the one side that have the, the real thin plastic insert that will give you the, um, the holder for the CDs uh, or DVDs. So that I, I prefer over this um, just because I don't want it sliding out and then getting run over or cracked or, you know, whatever. 
Um, of course, I digitize everything as soon as I get it anyway, so I've always got the actual digital backup. But still, I mean, if you're going to have physical product, you want to keep it in good shape. The book is really cool. Uh, some nice words on the front. And then uh, individual information uh, done as, again, crime scene write-ups for each of the band members. Really super cool stuff. Um, absolutely love, love, love the way that they did the, the marketing and the packaging on this. I think that part is fantastic. I think where they really go wrong is just they do a big disservice to the fans by not explaining what you're getting, which version you should choose. And uh, and then, of course, sneaking out the uh, upgraded editions after the fact, which they didn't quite do that because I'm not having to buy the album again, which is a little bit better. Maybe they at least learned from that last time. But, uh, you know, you don't get the option of getting the, the digipack with both the album and the DVD or Blu-ray. So uh, apart from that, though, fantastic job on the marketing. I love that Deep Purple put out an album because basically they could have just done nothing. So for all the people that complained that, you know, we want new material, at least you've got something to listen to that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, this is how these guys make their living. I'm glad that they found a way to get something new out there and they can, you know, now take a little more initiative if they want to give some more money to their road crew, you know, until they can start touring again. 2020 is looking like it. there's some optimism here for bands getting back on the road. I know the other band that I do a podcast for, Uriah Heap, has a lot of stuff that is booked around Europe. A lot of the big festivals they've been invited to play. And um, Deep Purple is going to be playing a couple of gigs in Florida, in the States, for some reason. Just a couple in Florida and then back over to Europe doing festivals and, again, tours over there. Uh, I know they're going to be hitting Russia and some other countries. Hopefully, both of those bands will get back over here at some point. Um, that would be great. You know, it's interesting. I've been doing this podcast for Uriah Heap for over a year. I interviewed Mick Box last was it last September or last October of 2020? Uh, you know, we've done a couple of Zooms. We've exchanged a lot of emails. We've never met. So it would be nice to, to meet the guys in person. And um, podcasts will be over by the time that even happens. Um, but but yeah, it's it's something that we hope will happen here. But I would rather sacrifice going to the show and have them doing what they feel they need to do for their safety and their longevity more so than let's just go over here and hope everything's going to be okay because there's still so much up in the air and now we have a new variant. God only knows, you know, it, it all depends on who you listen to and people tend to stop listening when they hear the thing that they want to hear. So enough about all of that. It's time to talk about the music. The first song is called Seven and Seven Is. And of course, you know, uh, being a drummer, math is a little bit more of my thing. So uh, my first thing is it's 14. But of course, you know that's not where this is going. So let's check out Seven and Seven Is. This is the first song on Turning to Crime by Deep Purple. I love this song. I am not at all familiar with the original. Couldn't tell you anything about it. But what I can say is that I love Deep Purple's version of it. This has got so much energy. It's a kick-ass way to start off any kind of rock album. 
um, just let's get right into it and just energize and, and, you know, jump around, whatever you feel like doing. Pretty amazing. What I especially love on this is a couple things. I mean, right off the bat, Ian Gillen sounds just as good as ever. Uh, his voice is very strong. And, you know, there's there's certain things that you can do in a studio, but you have to have a good basic package. And Ian still sounds as good as ever to me. You know, I think back to albums like, um, you know, Bananas or Abandon or, or even Perpendicular. And if I were to compare his voice, it sounds just as good as it ever has. So that right off the bat, that's exciting to me because the voice is a very difficult thing to maintain. It does show signs of age um, very obviously and with somebody who uses their voice as much as Ian has. And you have to wonder, you know, this whole pandemic has probably been more difficult on vocalists than anyone else because guitar players will play guitar. Keyboard players will play keyboards. Drummers will drum. Drummers? Drummers will drum. But uh, for singers to keep up the pace that they're used to, you know, especially a band that tours as much as Purple, it's got to be the toughest on them during the pandemic because they're, I would imagine, less likely to just go around the house singing than a guitar player would be like, I'm going to go practice and just lock off that kind of time. I don't know why I have that impression, but I do. And um, I just see singers as a more crowd responding or, you know, getting their energy from the crowd kind of thing during those longer shows. Why would you just sing a two hour show if there's no crowd? I don't know. For some reason, vocals just seem a little bit different to me than other instruments. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not at all the way it is. And that's fine. But it, whatever the answer is, through the pandemic and all the time being off touring, Ian sounds just as great as ever. And that is, uh, that's really exciting to me. Also, the production on this is just fantastic. I look at the waveform, it looks just like it's, you know, brick wall limited. It's got sound everywhere, which is very typical of uh, Bob Ezrin stuff, but it sounds good. Just like the last album, when I looked at Woosh, it was the same thing. I'm like, here are these ridiculous looking waveforms, but yet the sound is phenomenal. I don't know how he does it. He is a master of getting a good recording uh, and, and producing it well. And this especially you would expect to sound very different because he didn't record it as normal. Everybody recorded on their own and sent their stuff in. So it's it's a whole different thing. So in spite of those challenges, the album sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, there's a really great guitar solo followed by a keyboard solo in here that I really love. Both of those. But here's the best part of this song for me. There is, from the time that the guitar solo's starting... Uh, Ian Pace and Roger go back into the thing they used to do on stage, whether it was during Space Truckin's long, drawn-out part or whether it was when they were doing it as Mandrake Root. But it goes into this, uh, you know, snare, kick, and cymbal. Uh, you know, in this case, he's using the ride. Uh, and then this just really cool bass groove. And they've gone back to that for the song. And I love that. I miss that because they don't do it live anymore. You know, the band has changed the way that they do their sets. They're not doing, doing these long, drawn-out 25, 30-minute songs anymore. So to hear this part make a comeback was really cool, I have to say. Uh, probably my favorite part of the song. But it's a good song. It's got a good groove to it. Killer solos, great vocal. Um, yeah, I would give this song a thumbs up for sure. One I'll listen to again, for sure. Our next song I am familiar with and it is called the rocket. Well, it's just called Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu. Boogie Woogie Flu. 
in general, I hate this song. And part of it, 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 it yes, it's very catchy. I like the the verse of it. I think the verse is pretty cool in the the rhythm of it. I like the you know, just the the one line response thing is pretty nice. Um, I've never cared for the lyrics. I've always thought they were kind of ridiculous. But what's a big turnoff to me, and I, I pretty much just have a hard time enjoying any song that talks about rock and roll or music or anything as if it's something else. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like it as a metaphor for the most part. I mean, there's a couple songs that are okay. None of them are coming to mind at the moment. But anything that, that, you know, other now the song Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin would be an exception because it's just talking about rock and roll as rock and roll. But something like this, where it's using rock and roll as a metaphor, it just, I don't know, it's always been a turnoff. And then when with lines like, I want to kiss her, but she's way too tall. Like, is it a midget singing this song to, to like a female basketball player? You know, I don't like that kind of imagery. It's always been a turnoff. So I've never really cared for this song. That being said, this is a pretty damn good version of it. Um, I love the double and triple tracking on the vocals. I think that's really well done. There's some great piano work from Don Airy on this one. It's it's just a fun song to listen to if you can get past, like for me, if I can get past the words, musically, it's a great song. Vocally, it's sung very well. And the way that they did it in the studio is great. I just hate the lyrics of this song. And that makes it very difficult for me to enjoy any version of it. But I will say, this is a pretty good version of it. There's a lot of energy in it, a lot of, you know, stuff just being filled in, stuff to pay attention to. I think it's very well done. And I actually love this version so much more than the original. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not keen on the original, but I have to say this is this is one I could listen to. And I will. I will. There you go. So Deep Purple made me like a song that I absolutely hated. Well done, guys. Speaking of songs I don't know, well, this is a song I don't know anything about. And it is called Oh Well. Just Oh Well. This is such a weird song. Uh, I, I love the guitar opening here, and we hear it repeat a couple of times during the song. It's like the song has three parts, and then they just do those again, and they do those again. But it, th this particular sound, I love it. It reminds me of an Aerosmith song called Hangman's Jury that was on Permanent Vacation. It has a, you know sort of that Southern rock feel to it. I'm going to play you a little bit of that, and uh, I'll let you be the judge. Thank you. 
nigga sitting in the shade, talking about the money that I didn't made. Singing, what boy, don't you lounge track? Like a what boy, don't you lounge track? What boy, don't you lounge track? Like a what boy, don't you lounge But, um, yeah, it just has kind of a similar feel to it to me. Obviously, the, the tempo and the, the intensity is a little bit different, but just the same general feel. Um, but oh well, it's it's a cool song. It's just a very odd structure. So you've got this opening, the band kicks in, then it goes to just four lines of uh, acapella vocals, and then, well, acapella. What else do you have? Acapella. Uh, then it goes back into the riff again, and the bass drum comes in, and it repeats. It's a different pattern for the rockish part of the song. It's just a really weird thing, and that keeps going. Um, I think the work on it is fantastic. I love Steve's playing on this, especially. Uh, I love when the band kicks in in the second section going forward because it's a little more uh, pronounced, I think, than it is in this opening section. Uh, but that's really cool. There's some really good snare work at the end for me and Pace. Um, it's it's just a really weird song to me. The, the structure and the setup is just very strange. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a little more normal than I'm making it out to be. But to me, it just feels like a very weird, very weird um uh, whoever sat down and decided here's how we're going to arrange the parts that's just very strange to me and again i don't know if that was deep purple i don't know if that was the original how it was done because i've never heard it before but it just i don't know it's weird but i like it that's the thing is i still like the song the parts themselves are great um just something very different for purple something i wouldn't expect but yet they still really put their flair into it that's for certain so our next song is jenny take a ride with an exclamation point have to wonder how much of the budget for this album was put into drum heads for Ian Pace's snare. He is really giving it a workout on this album and it sounds great. Um, I would imagine he uses his own signature snare. I would have to think so. I'll have to look at his setup. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, it's a cool song. You know, it's, it's got a good groove to it. That style of, um, you know, drumming, progressing a song forward is always good. It works. I think what I don't like about the song, again, and I'm not typically a lyrical guy, I don't really pay attention to lyrics that much, but when you've got a team like Gillen and Glover, who are such great lyricists and put some really intelligent stuff together, you know, listening to, to Ian sing these songs is a little bit harsh, I think, in the fact that the words just aren't up to the kind of stuff that he would write. So it seems like it's taking a step back um, from the overall production because the lyrics just aren't, you know... They're not the kind of stuff that he would do. Um, that being said, musically and vocally, the vocal delivery is great. Um, very energetic, but uh, just don't care for the words. The music itself is really good. Don's got some great stuff on this one, too. Um, the ending is really interesting. It's a very tight song. I mean, there are some really good precision parts in here that the guys just absolutely nail how long it took that to happen. Well, you know, you can do a lot more in your home than you can when you're paying tons and tons of dollars per hour for a recording studio. I can say they were they would have been able to just kind of take their time and relax and 
play the parts and get them right. So, I mean, I don't know how different it was for them. Maybe they just went in and nailed it. I don't know. But there's a couple of odd counts in here. There's some really weird accents, but they're they're cool. They make the song a little bit more interesting, uh, certainly challenging as a musician to hit those accents just right. But at the end of the day, we've got a great song here. Um, overall, it's a great song. Um, don't know the original, so I can't compare it. But I would just say that I like Deep Purple's version of it. That's that's really all I can say. Um, that moves us into our fifth song, Watching the River Flow. That actually sounds really nice. Just sitting there, kicking back on the hill, just watching the river. That actually sounds really pleasant. Yeah, there's definitely some cool stuff in this song. Don really has got some great parts in here. I love the sound of the piano in the opening, and then it changes to, you know, the piano with no effect on it right before the vocals kick in. Really cool. I like that. Steve's got a great solo in here, a short one, but a great one. I'm pretty sure he's playing that with a slide. It has that kind of sound to it. Um, but the, the mix is very low and heavy in these headphones. So I can't really discern as much what Roger's doing as I have been able to in the other songs. It's a little bit muddier to me, but overall, yeah, it's a good song. It's got good energy to it. Um, again, you know, vocally who knows, but, um, yeah, it's a good song. It's a good song. I like it. I think that it's got that kind of energy that you would come to expect from a deep purple song. You know, if they were to have written this that kind of energy is what they put into it. And I think the overall sound of it's fantastic. Uh, you know, another winner for me on this album. And then, you know, the real treat is at the end, we get this beautiful classical piece from Don Airy. I mean, you think the song is over, it's 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 kind of ending, and then there's just this blistering, beautiful piece from Don. I don't know if he wrote it. I don't know. It, it, it sounds like it might have been Beethoven, but it sounds like it's not quite something Beethoven would have done. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that piece. It it doesn't sound familiar, but it's in the style of someone. Um, I just can't. I, I just can't be sure who it is. But either way, it's a very, very cool. I haven't heard Don do anything like that since a song called Weisheim by Rainbow. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's German, and there is a, a wonderful piano part that is actually a classical piece that was written by somebody else, and I can't think of who it was. But it's just just this very gentle thing. And then there's just these little inflections of Richie playing through uh, using his volume control. Uh, just really beautiful. And so this is the first time I can recall hearing Don do something quite like that uh, since then. And I love it. I think it's a very, very good addition to the song. Adds just another touch, you know, another extra thing to enjoy. And uh, I really dig that he did that. And that brings us to the halfway point of the album, which is called... Let the good times roll. Hey, everybody, let's 
Well, this is the song that really kind of takes me back in time to thinking of like the 50s and the clubs that were out there, the the really nice clubs that had the full band with, you know, an, an orchestra, or at least a small orchestra, or just maybe a horn section and some percussion. Um, there was a show here, I'm not sure if it's going to be coming back or not, that was at Planet Hollywood called Vegas the Show. And it was about this kind of era, right? They take you back in time to that part of Vegas. You're talking Sammy Davis Jr. era. And there was a lot of this kind of, you know, I don't want to call it big band because that would be, that would leave a different connotation. But just, a, you know, that full sounding band that you would have um, really amazing players. The stages used to like pour back so that dancers could come out. It was a really cool thing. And this definitely brings me back to to that time and thinking about, uh, you know, another another example might be like I Love Lucy, thinking about Ricky Ricardo's show. Well, that was more Cuban music, um, just that sort of like when when he was there and he had all the the players on the rare time that they actually showed his show, um, you know, just like that kind of thing tiered. You know, you've got your your usually like three or four tiers back and they're done like bleachers where each band member is a little higher than the one in front of it kind of a cool thing. It was it was definitely a different time. It was a real classy time. I mean, that would be the kind of thing that you wouldn't just like, oh, let's just go to the club. Wh- whatever we're wearing is fine. You would get dressed up to go to the club. It would be a big deal. And, um, you know, especially if somebody like Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. or Dean Martin or somebody was going to be there, Frank Sinatra would be another one I would think of. And they were really pretty big events. And so this song just takes me right back to those moments. I wasn't there for them at least not in this life, but I've seen a lot of them. I've experienced some replications of them, all very, very classy. But that's some of the stuff I grew up watching too. So that definitely touches my heart a little bit uh, and, and brings back a little bit of the nostalgia. Although I would imagine a lot of this for a lot of people is uh, very nostalgia driven. Um, but the song is good. I like their version of it. I think Ian sings great for this style of music. And he still has that little whimsical feel about him, you know, that that it's fun. And I really like that. I think the music is solid. Love the brass section addition to the song. I don't know if that's a real brass section or if that's all uh, simulated. It's so easy to do great, uh, you know, classical mock-ups these days. So I also, uh, you know, when I saw the title, I saw they were doing the song. I thought it was going to be a version of the car song, Let the Good Times Roll, written by Rick O'Casey, but it was not, it was definitely not that song. <laughs> so uh, that that really covers the first half of the album. Now moving on to where I would guess side two or perhaps side three, depending on, you know, what what's on what version, because I still don't know, um, would be the song Dixie Chicken. Hate the title. Hate the title. So despite my lack of joy over the title and really the the metaphor in the song, you know, I again go back to the 
I don't really care for this style of vocal writing. You know, the, the lyrics themselves, if you be my Dixie chicken, then I'll be your whatever. Um, don't really care for that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem intelligent to me. And I like things that are intelligent and creative or at least normal. You know, I, I've never been a fan of, I think that's a lot of the reason I don't really care for much Southern rock is because a lot of what I've heard is that kind of stuff. However, that being said, I love this song. I know, right? I'm confused too. Here's the reason. Vocally, the song is fantastic. Ian does a great job. I love where he doubles the vocals. I love the feel of the verse and the chorus, especially. I think vocally, it's fantastic. Lyrically, it's not that intelligent to me, but vocally, it's fantastic. And then the music is good. It's just got a really nice forward motion to it. You know, I'm I'm just out for a Sunday drive kind of feel. I'm enjoying things, not a care in the world. I really like that. Again, some wonderful work from Don Airy on this song, but the band sounds really good on the whole. The song is a fun song. And if I could just separate the lyrics from the sound of the voice, if I listen to the voice as an instrument and not as something delivering a story, then I can like this song more. And again, that's got nothing to do with Purple. They didn't write the song. They just chose to do it as a cover. But it is a good song. It's got a good feel to it. It does have... Musically, uh, to me, in my impression of Southern Rock, it has a Southern Rock feel to it. But that I don't mind. I think the song is great. And I'm really glad that they did it. If they would have said, hey, we're thinking about doing a song called Dixie Chicken, I would have said, what else you got? But I'm glad they did it. I think it's a good song, um, at least their version of it anyway. And again, I've never heard the original, at least not as far as I know. So I have nothing to compare it to. But what I can say is I like what I just heard. Um... That brings us to a song called Shapes of Things, which is a really interesting title. Well, I want to issue not a correction, I guess a clarification. The If I'm looking at the actual CD that I got and looking at the back cover, the song is called Shapes of Things, shapes with an S on the end, on both ends. The track, however, is listed when I digitized it as shape of things, as in the shape, one shape of things versus shapes of things. So I don't actually know which one is right. The S could be silent in the song. It's hard to say. But in any case, uh, it's a great song. It definitely has that 60s music feel to me. Uh, Really nice builds in there. I love Ian's voice on this. And I think it's a fun song. You know, it's got a nice little walking bass line to it. But I love what Roger's playing behind Steve's solo. That is just some killer stuff right there. The kind of stuff I would expect Roger to be writing if he had written this song. But just great stuff overall. Really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's just a fun song to listen to. You know, the vocals are something you could sing along with pretty easily and have fun with. Good feeling song. You know, I'm really glad that they did this one. It's, again, uh, not one that I am familiar with at all, but one that is uh, a lot of fun. Glad they did it. 
Um, our next song is called The Battle of New Orleans. This is another song that I was completely unfamiliar with, but I was thinking about one time I heard Roger Glover talking about when Ian Gillen in the 70s couldn't do a show. I think it was when he came down with hepatitis and um, they had a gig they had to do. And so he tried to sing lead and it didn't really work out that well. He said he's glad that there's no tape of it. (laughs) Although I would imagine he's a much harsher critic on himself. I think you know, I would love to see that. I'm sure I would enjoy it. But I remember him saying it, it would be nice to say I once sang lead for Deep Purple. Well, Roger, now you can say that you sang lead for Deep Purple. You were the lead singer on this song, even though Ian Gillen joins you and his voice is sometimes more dominant in the mix than yours. Um, I think that has a little bit to do with the pitch as well as the mix. But here nor there, you have sung lead for Deep Purple, my friend. Well done. Dream fulfilled. So... This is kind of like, a, you know, like an Irish drinking song or, uh, you know, like a pirate song that that pirates would sing when they're just getting drunk and talking about the old days and how hard a pirate's life is. It just reminds me of those kinds of songs. You know, it, it, it tells a story that's really horrific, but in a joyful way. And that's just kind of weird to me. Um, I like it. I like the rhythm of it. I love what Ian Pace is playing on it. It's it's very much in his wheelhouse. There's some nice dynamics. If you really listen close, there's some nice things that he's throwing in there here and there that are pretty cool. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's a pretty straightforward song. You know, I think if the the keyboard I'm hearing sounded a little more, it sounds kind of accordion, but I, if it were, you know, like had that breathing sound of the accordion, I think would would give it a more piratey feel. But it really kind of feels Irish to me. Um, it's a cool song. It's not one of my favorites, only because I don't like this particular style of song for the most part. Um, if this had been a concept that, say, Ian Gillen did with the, the Gillen Band, this would have been, I think it would have fit in more. Like a song like No Laughing in Heaven. I love that song, even though it's done in kind of the same style. You know, it's much heavier, of course. But that song is done in that same storytelling style. The music drops out here and there to let the story come through. We have the same thing here in this song. Um, but I love the song No Laughing in Heaven. This song, I'm like, eh, it's okay. But I love Deep Purple's version of it. They made it fun. You know, it's one that I think when I listen to this album, I won't skip it. I'll let it play because it's good It's good to listen to. I think they did a really good job. And it's a real treat to hear Roger sing. I think that's really nice. I love the ending of it, too. Um, There's some really cool stuff happening at the end with Steve and Don. Um, Well-performed, I would say. Good arrangement, well-performed. Can't compare it to the original, but that's where we are. Our next song is simply titled Lucifer.
this is a pretty cool song. Um, again, don't know the original, so I, I have nothing to compare it to. Just taking this version on its own, a couple things that stand out right off the bat. I love the riff of this song. It is very, very active. It's got great motion to it, goes some places that I wouldn't expect it to, and is very, very creative. Um, I love that we have the return of the cowbell in this song. Haven't heard Ian play the cowbell a whole lot in the last few years. Uh, that's a really nice surprise. Gillen's voice sounds fantastic on this. Again, another song I think he could have done well in the Ian Gillen band and, you know, maybe spiced it up a little bit, made it heavier and, and matched their sound. But I think a song that could have worked well. Amazing, amazing Hammond solo on this by Don Airy. And uh, it, it reminded me when I interviewed Graham Bonnet and I asked him about something that Don Airy did. And I said, how does he do it? And he just looked at me and he goes, well, he's Don fucking Airy. He's absolutely right. The guy is, is unbelievable, uh, obviously doing what he was born to do. And uh, from I, I have not met him, but uh, everybody that I've met that knows him or has met him has just said that, you know, very much like John Lord, he's just the nicest guy. And I could I could see that. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, great bass playing on this one, too. What What is really perplexing to me on this song and there's a lot of great guitar work in the riff, too, you'll hear. But what's really perplexing is, so Don gets this really long solo. It's fantastic. When we get to Steve, they just start fading out the song. I'm like, wait a minute. I like where this is going. I want to hear what Steve had to say. We don't really know. Don't know. Maybe there'll be another CD that is released by the record company with the extended version where we can find out what he played. Um, but I kind of felt like the party wasn't over yet, that there was there was more fun to be had and they just cut it just like that. So I I was left a little bit empty at the end of this one. Um, that happens, you know, but I, I really liked where it was headed. I would have liked to have heard what Steve had in mind for the song, but what we do get to hear is great. So I guess I'll just have to take that and live with it until the deluxe super purple CD edition comes out where they have extended remixes of all these things. Um, that leads us to our second to the last track on the album, one that I am familiar with. And I will tell you uh, the quick story that I heard for all these years. I, you know, I knew that Deep Purple, when they had released Shades of Deep Purple and Hush was really big, they got flown over to the States to do a tour opening for Cream on Cream's farewell tour. Now, I didn't know anything about Ginger Baker at this point and what a, what a, just angry, hateful person he came to be. Still not sure I understand all the details why. I don't need to. All I know is that he was very unhappy and very angry. And that's a sad way to live, you know, especially when you've given the world so much to listen to, White Room being one of those songs. Uh, so, you know, here Deep Purple's flown over to the States. They're doing uh, Playboy After Dark. Richie's giving Hugh Hefner a guitar lesson. I mean, this is after their first album recording. That's crazy. You know, so they're here in the States. They got to show off. You know, they got something to prove. So, of course, you know, even at this point, they're hitting the stage full tilt. They're taking Mandrake Root to 20, 25 minutes, maybe almost their whole set, uh, that and Hush. Who knows? But they're they're squeezing every drop that they can. I know this because I've seen performances from around this time right out of the gate. They were just on fire as a live band. So I imagined... Opening up for Cream, it was probably pretty difficult for Cream, who's at the end. They're probably like, you know, this is over. Let's get through our last few shows. 
um, we're breaking up, this is done, we're all going to go on to do other things or retire or whatever. So you would think that they would maybe not have as much excitement in their show. So I always figured that the reason that that Deep Purple was kicked off the tour after just a couple of shows was that they they outstaged them. You know, here's Deep Purple, young kids on fire, opening up for a band who's in their their ending days. You know, and I'm not talking about older people. I'm just, you know, the band was just done. So I always figured that was the case. But anytime I had heard any interview, it was, we don't know what happened, was the way it was always explained. And then somewhere along the line, I can't remember if it was on one of Ian Pace's tribe videos on YouTube or where I found out. But yeah, they did get kicked off because they outshined the headliner. And that does happen. Um, I remember seeing Metallica on the Injustice for All tour, which was not, it was the first album where I think things started to die down a little bit tempo-wise compared to some of the other albums. They had a couple fast songs, but they were really heading away from that, I felt. Um, They were writing good songs, but they weren't all, you know, they didn't have as much, I don't know, you know, maybe compared to the other albums, they were pretty similar. I'll have to talk to Brandon at Metallicast, see what he thinks. But in any case, Operation Mindcrime had come out by Queensryche and Queensryche was opening for Metallica and just blew them off the stage as far as I was concerned. I didn't know much about Queensryche at that point and I I loved Metallica. They were one of my favorite bands and I thought they just blew them right off stage. So maybe it was the songs that were chosen. You know, I don't know. There's a lot to be said about that. Metallica certainly was in full form at that time. Um I, I don't really know how to explain it other than I, I just thought that Queensryche came out with this just amazing energy. We're here to play for you guys. And Metallica was, they were, they were there, they were present, they were playing great. But for some reason, it's just like Queensryche took it to another level. And I, I was just blown away by that. So I would imagine, you know, it, it isn't too far of a stretch of the imagination to think that Deep Purple would have gotten kicked off the Cream fight Farewell Tour because they were just on fire. You know, I mean, you're talking kids that are just been handed the key to the candy store and they're out there just bringing it every night. So not surprising at all. However, it's kind of interesting then that the band is now covering White Room. Yeah, I love this. I think this is absolutely fantastic. It sounds vintage, but it sounds modern at the same time. It's really well done. The song is just full from ear to ear. There's so much going on in it. Great performances, some great work by Steve, probably his best song on the album so far. Really, really wonderful and enjoyable to listen to. I've not been, I I don't dislike the song. I've never been just a huge fan of it. It's one that, you know, you hear from time to time. You're like, oh yeah, White Room. I forgot about that song. You you just kind of move on. And I'm really glad that they chose to do this one because I think they did a fantastic version of it. I really enjoyed it. Probably for me um, so far, I know we've got like one medley to go, but um just just my favorite one, I think, on this album so far. But, you know, I've only heard it a couple times. So 
over the course of, of the coming year or so, who knows how things will sort themselves out as I get used to the songs, as I kind of forget about lyrics that I don't like and just get more into the the feeling of it. But the the cadence of the vocals on this song, these three and four word phrases is uh, is really interesting that are just the way that they're strung together. Uh, I've always thought that was kind of cool about the song. I love the variety of the parts of the songs too. Those are really cool. Listen to, to Ian Pace's hi-hat during the part where he switches to Tom's because there's a couple different places, depending on which pass you're listening to, where he puts that hi-hat that he's hitting with his foot. Very interesting. Uh, really cool though. The drums especially sound great on this song too. Um, you can really hear everything clearly. Roger, of course, playing great. Um, I love the organ on this song too. Um, it's very predominant on this album. You know, whenever he plays the organ, it's really kind of overshadowing the mix a little bit, just a little bit, but that's so common for the era of these kind of songs that we're listening to. So it's, it's mixed in a more traditional way in that sense, but you know, it's got that modern sound to it, but you could feel the original if you, maybe it's just because I, I know a couple of these or but even the, even the one from the 60s, I was like, yeah, that feels like it's from the 60s, you know, and I didn't know the song. So, yeah, who knows? All I know is this has been a great album to listen to. And for all the people that have cheated themselves out of it because they're too elite to listen to a, a, a band that they love so much doing a cover album, you people are really missing out. You really are, you know, and... and that's fine. If you want to do that, be my guest. But there's some great music on here. I'm so glad the band put this album together and got it out there. And Bob Ezrin was involved because the sound of it is just fantastic. I'm sure he was involved in the arrangements and stuff as well. But yeah, this has been a great album so far. So I'm just going to play a little bit of the medley here, obviously, because I'm just doing short clips on this show. We're not even going to scratch the surface of what's involved. But here's how it kicks off. Oh, this is just a fun jam. You know, a little bit of going down, a little bit of green onions, a little bit of dazed and confused, some great classics in here for sure. You know, some of this, it seems like they included the last few times I saw them, they included in the, towards the end of the show, you know, before they do the finale and then the encore, uh, it's usually when Roger starts his bass solo part and then uh, he's joined by Ian Pace throughout all of that. It seems like we've heard some of this stuff as some of the rest of the band joins in. I'm pretty sure I've heard Green Onions at least, if not a couple of these other bits, but really cool stuff. It sounds fantastic, really rich and alive, you know, vibrant sounding. The whole album just sounds great. I have to say, I am so glad that they released this album. It gives us something new to enjoy while we wait for things to continue to unfold and hopefully see these guys play again. I know that people in Europe are probably more likely than we are here in the States, at least in 2022. Looks like all of the dates, except for those early couple of dates in Florida. So jealous of you guys, John and Nate, who are going to see one of those shows. Uh, 
I, uh, I, I think apart from that, everything that I've seen is more along the lines of dates in Europe. And, you know, for the most part, that makes sense, I guess. But that's where the big festivals are going to be happening with more of the major rock bands, because a lot of them are from that area. And some of them still live in that area. Of course, Steve Morse still lives in Florida. But, you know, uh, it's typically European tours are, are the, the things that happen. So I'm not too surprised that it's going that way. Hopefully they will start to feel more comfortable and we'll be able to make it over to the States before too long. Uriah Heap's doing the same thing. Um, you know, and most of those guys live, I believe that, that I know at least a couple of them live in England. I'm not sure where they all are. Uh, I know Bernie's in Canada. So, you know, they've got their one member over here in North America, just like uh, Deep Purple does. But they're going to make it work, and hopefully they'll be back over here in the States as well and uh, celebrating their 50th anniversary from two years ago that they kind of got cheated out of by COVID. And, you know, all we can do is is sit back and wait. You know, in the meantime, we've got bands that are just, they'll go play anywhere, like the Dead Daisies. I, I haven't heard of uh, too many restrictions. I'm sure that any of the countries that are still severely overrun with COVID numbers, they're probably not going to, but, you know, they've been doing uh, dates all over the place. So it's it's kind of cool to see. Hopefully it's not just that they're going to do this and then something's going to happen again. You know, hopefully this is kind of the door opening, the first people sticking their finger out to check the temperature of the of the world and maybe open up the door for everyone else to start coming through. That's my hope anyway, because I would love to see Purple again. I'd love to see Uriah Heap again. Um, both of those would be great treats. And, you know, it's funny. I've met uh, four members of Deep Purple. I have not met in person any members of Uriah Heap, but I do an entire podcast for Uriah Heap. So they got to get to the States so we can get together for a beer or drink or whatever it is that uh, that they'd like to have. And... um yeah, enjoy this album, guys. Really ignore all the bullshit comments and all the elitism and all the things that you might read about this album. Just have an open mind. Check it out for yourself. For me, this is a fun album. You know, I'm not a fan of some of these songs, but I still enjoy the way that Purple did them. And I have to say that thinking about it, you know, there isn't a single song because I thought there's going to be like three or four songs that I'll like and the rest when I put on the CD, I'll just skip over or maybe I'll make a condensed version on my iPod. But you know what? They're all on my iPod and they're all going to stay there because they're all great songs. So thank you guys for doing the dirtiest thing that you could do in rock and roll. Turn to crime, do an album of covers, keep yourselves and keep us entertained while we wait for things to unfold. And hopefully there's still another studio album. You know, I, I have to think that just recording together in the process of that would would say, you know, I really kind of want to write something together too. I, I have to think that there's a spark there because since they've been with Bob Ezrin, um, it seems like it's it's a much more enjoyable experience. They've never been a band that's happy in the studio. It's like the thing you have to do so that you can go do the tour. But it seems like Bob has really found that that right situation for these guys. And even though they can't record in Nashville anymore, you know, at least not at the same studio, I'm sure that there's plenty of other places that they can go and relax and feel comfortable and make it home for a couple of weeks and do another album at some point. Maybe uh, in between some of these tour dates, they'll start working on that. Who knows? We'll see. Time will tell. But in the meantime, guys, enjoy what we have to enjoy the world is crazy. It's absolutely insane. You, you can't really predict where anything is going to go. So my best advice, find enjoyment in everything you do. You know, everything that you can. Take advantage of what we do have that we can do. You know, 
there's a lot of things that we we tend to focus on the things we can't the things that we're missing out on i say focus on the things you can do and the people that you can do them with we have all these methods of communication you know i've done podcasts with people all over the world because of the technology that we have these days some of them now i'm starting to do video podcasts and it's amazing you know i never would have thought that we'd be able to connect with each other the way that we have i just had to buy uh, a new phone because my phone is, you know, it's dying a slow death, unfortunately. And um, it made me realize that as a child, there are two things that are the opposite in life of what I thought they would be. One is that I never thought a phone would be something that would be so important that I would want to have it on me at all times in case of emergency, in case of opportunity, someone needing comfort, whatever it might be. I never thought it would be that important. I thought it was just the thing that hung on the wall. If you're home and you feel like it, you answer it. And if you don't, you let it go to your answering machine. And then you rewind that little cassette and you hear their message. And, you know, you call them back when you damn well feel like it, if you ever do. Nowadays, it's it's all quite different. The phone has become the foundation of a lot of people's lives, good or bad. Um, For me, it's been a great business tool as well as just a great tool for keeping in touch with some people that I really care about. And uh, I just never thought it would be that big of a thing. On the contrast to that, I thought, according to cartoons, quicksand was something that I always needed to be afraid of and aware of. And I always needed to have like a low hanging branch near me just in case I randomly fell into quicksand because it seemed to be something that might dominate my life. However, I, in my almost 50 years, have never once been in the presence of quicksand, let alone been in any danger of it. So I I feel misled. (laughs) Uh, This is the last show before Christmas, guys. I was going to do uh, my review of Roger Glover's Snapshot before the holidays, but I've got some other things that are taking up my time. So I will be doing that after the holidays. On Christmas, I will be running my annual show of my my uh mental sauna three christmas inflections album please feel free to enjoy that if you like it go check out the album it's great for background for decorating for your holiday party for relaxing you know it 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 really just kind of fits and there's something you know i don't pat myself on the back for a lot of things that i do i really don't but this album uh really is very special to me there's something about just the sound that I got out of it, the the warmth, the tonal quality and warmth is very difficult to do when you're doing digital music. It really is. It, things, synthesizers and thing, things tend to feel really cold. I worked very hard to get the sound on the album that I did, and I, I'm really proud of it. There's a couple of songs that just take me right back to my childhood and going to my grandparents' house on Christmas Eve after my dad got off work and just, you know, opening them opening the door And that's really when Christmas started. You know, they had this uh, front room where uh, the only thing we ever did in it was sing Christmas carols. It wasn't it was a showroom. You know, it wasn't like a a family room. It was just a showroom in the front with a piano. And um, that would be where we would sing carols later on in the night. But you could smell the, the mashed potatoes and the meat and everything that my grandma was cooking and it just it, it just comes back so vivid when I listen to a couple of those songs. And it's honestly a very proud project for me. And so uh, give it a chance. If you would, on Christmas, that episode will air at 1 a.m. L.A. time. 
Uh, that would be 9 a.m. in England and whatever time, depending on what time zone you're in in various parts of the world. If you really want to hear it now, you can actually go back and listen to last year's run of it on Christmas of 2020. Or you could just check out the album. Um, it is available everywhere. Amazon, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, all the places. It is Mental Sauna 3, Christmas Inflections is the name of the album. It has a beautiful cover designed by Kelly Kincart with these just wonderful, warm-looking candles. Um, one of my favorites that she's done. It was just the first time I saw it, I just said, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. This really matches the music, the color wash, the tones, everything was phenomenal. So check that out if you like. The episode this year will run, like I said, on Christmas Day. I will be back uh, next week at normal time with my review of Roger Glover's Snapshot. Lots of things to come, guys. We've got um, just under 100 episodes left to do on the show. So it'll take, you know, who knows? I might do a whole slew of them at one point. But uh, while I'm still doing the Uriah Heat podcast, um, you know, there's not as much time as I would like to uh, to kind of front load episodes on this one. So we've got some guests that'll be coming up. We've got some cool episodes, some things to review, some interviews. Uh, we got we got a ways to go. We're not done yet. So happy Christmas, everyone. I hope you have a safe and wonderful holiday. Enjoy all the moments. Don't spend so much time being concerned about pictures and capturing everything on video. Live the experience. Don't try and capture something to live the experience later. Get some stuff. Sure. Get a little bit of footage, but really just enjoy the moment. That's what we should be doing. You guys take care. Have a wonderful holiday. See you on Saturday. Cheers. <laughs>